All right, good morning, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you as we kick off a brand new series called Bad-ish. And I thought we could start our series by having some fun by playing a good-ish type of game together. We're going to play a little name that tune type of game. And here's how it's going to work. We're going to play a little bit of a song. And if you can name that song, raise up your hand. And if I call on you and you can name that song, you win a good-ish prize. You win a, a Mr. Good Bar. So are you ready? You want to give it a shot? So we're doing Baddish. That should give you some clues about the songs we're going to play. And DJ, play that first song. Anybody? Okay. I, the first hand was right there. Okay. What, what's the song? Bad by Michael Jackson. Come get your prize, girl. All right, girl, you're bad. You're bad. Awesome. That's song number one. Okay, this one, they're, they're going to get a little tougher as we go. Song number two, DJ. All right, right over here. I saw the first hand right over here. Bad day, Daniel Pouter. Come on up, girl. You win your Mr. Good Bar as you're coming. I think that's what happened to the Niners last Sunday. <laughs> they had a bad day, right? So, all right. So that's song number two. Let's go back to my, let's go back to the 80s and see if any of you older people can name this song. Let's have it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Come on up, you bad girl. That's bad girl's Donna Summer. All right. Man, you didn't hesitate. You knew that song. Okay, this next song, I want to set it up right because sometimes when you, when you put a Niners fan together with a Raiders fan, you might have something like this song. Take a listen. All right, I saw this hand go up first. Bad blood, Taylor Swift, come on up. Because <laughs> you're young. You knew that one. <laughs> hey, hey, guys, our last song, this is a funny thing. Like last night, like <laughs> nobody knew the song except for one young, like this is a young song. So we kind of did the 80s, Donna Summer. We're doing like the, the, the top song of the new year. Let's see if anyone knows it. DJ. Yeah, we have a youngin' right here. He's come on. What's the name of the song? What? What? Bad who? Bad guy, Billy Eilish. Come on up. Come on up, young man with the gray beard. Bad guy, Billy Eilish. How many of you knew that song? Yeah, there's you, you, all the cool people. I got to tell you, that song, Billy, I, a bad guy, I got to tell you, it's kind of a creepy song, but it's a great lead into our series because most of us, we have this, like, when we look at ourselves, most of us kind of have this opinion like, hey, I'm not a bad guy, or I'm not a bad girl. Yeah, of course, you know, once in a while I do some bad things, but I'm not really bad, I'm just bad-ish, 
And that's what we kind of want to talk about in our series today. And we actually have an outline for our message. Let me encourage you to take this out and use it to follow along. All the verses from the Bible that we're looking at are printed there for you. And as we jump into this series, I want to tell you the heart of what we're doing here is we're, we're going to address this innate tendency that we look at all the bad things, we, we tend to look at all the bad things that those people out there are doing while skipping over and refusing to address all the bad stuff that's going on inside here, inside our own hearts. And the danger of living this way is it can cause you, friends, listen to me, if you never address the bad stuff going on here, it can lead you to rationalize, justify, compartmentalize, and allow our little sins to take root in our lives. And here's what can happen. Those little sins can grow up like weeds that can take over the landscape of your whole life. And to top that all off, there's even a bigger danger in the church. Because when we do that in the church, we can become self-righteous snobs who end up spending all our energy judging people out there instead of becoming humble servants who try to show the love of God everywhere we go. Now, as we launch into this series, I want to make you aware that much of this series was, has been inspired by a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And in this book, he's writing to church people. And what are we doing right now? We're sitting in church. So he wrote this book to you and to me. And one of the things he said, I'll put it on the screen, it said one of the things he said, he's concerned that in our day that it's easy for us, church people, it's easy for us to condemn those with obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness, and lust, or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And then he goes on to say this, and I put this quote on your outline. He says, but on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are the sins of the saints. See, Jerry Bridges was concerned about this. But more importantly, do you know, Jesus was concerned about this. So much so that one time he told the story of the sinner and the saint. And it's printed there on your outline from Luke chapter 18 says this, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And here's the story, here's the setup. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. One was the saintly Pharisee, because Pharisees, they're religious leaders with high respect, high power, high prestige. One was a saint. And the other was a sinner. And he was a despised tax collector because tax co collectors were Jewish men who went to work for the Roman government to take money away from their own people. And so they, they saw tax collectors as traitors to the people, to their religion, to their God. They were definitely on the sinner side. And so you get, here's the setup. We have the saint, the Pharisee, and the sinner, the tax collector. And then it says this. The Pharisee stood by himself. And he was by himself because he, man, he didn't want to get, be defiled by hanging around with those low-life sinners. 
So the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. Now think about it, friends. I, I think the Pharisee needed some glasses because he definitely had an eye problem, right? <laughs> I, I, I. It's like so, so blatantly obvious. But then the story continues. So that's the, the saint. But the story continues with the sinner. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus, he gives the punchline to the whole story. Do you see it? He says, I tell you that this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified. Underline that phrase, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, right away, I want you to, to see three takeaways from this story. I hope you write them down. The first one is the Pharisee, he was self-righteous. Like he made his whole life, even his relationship with God, he made it all about him. I, I, I. He was self-righteous. The tax collector, he was self-aware. Now, he was self aware like he knew that he was a sinner and that he and he humbly asked for mercy and then we see the conclusion that this sinner was justified now don't let that word justified throw you let me give you a, a great definition for that word justified simply means just as if i'd never sinned justified never sinned just as if i'd never sinned and here's what Jesus was saying, that that sinner, that tax collector, man, he went home free. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from the weight of his sins because he was forgiven. Now, I wanna, now, now you heard the story. Now I want to ask you a question. In the story, who do you identify with the most? The self-righteous Pharisee or the humble tax collector? And before you answer that too quickly, I, wanna, I want you to really think about it because that's what I did. I kind of answered it too quickly. Let me tell you, I'm a part of a coaching network for pastors called Soul Care. And the whole idea of Soul Care is learning to engage more and more in your walk with God and to like allow Jesus to really become Lord of every area of your life as you learn to take good care of your soul. And one of their exercises was to wrestle with this idea of this prayer of search me and know me, O God, and see if there's any wicked ways in me. And so in my journal, I'm doing this exercise and I thought, well, hey, this won't take long because basically I'm doing pretty good. Like, hey, I'm a pastor. I read my Bible every day. I say my prayers every day. I lead groups in the church. I give messages. I tithe faithfully. I, 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 I'm pretty good. And, and look what happened. As I sat alone with God, man, God showed up by his Holy Spirit. 
and he shined his light on my soul. And in my journal, man, all these words, like he just brought to the surface of my soul. Pride, insecurity, anger, lust, deception, judging, fear, cursing. Friends, I wrote all these words down because, man, they were true of my life. And then I'd just like to share with you, not pridefully, but like humbly, what I wrote in my journal on the next page. It says, I wrote, as I tried to pay attention to my false self, my dark side over the last two weeks, I've seen every word on the previous page pop up and try to gain a footing in my life. Before this, I felt pretty together, but now I feel weak and exposed and more aware than ever that I need a savior. I've been surprised at how quick to anger I've been lately, especially while driving. And more than anger, the cussing and the rush to judgment and the the selfishness that has become more clear to me. Now, I'm a, little, I'm a little embarrassed to share this next part, but this is what the Holy Spirit likes to bring to the service. I pointed something out that made me cringe a little bit. I wrote, I also noticed my desire to, to appear better, more capable, and more spiritual than I actually am. And on the golf course, I was actually hoping Dwayne or Greg would hit a bad shot <laughs> so I could win. You know, I, you know, it's not that, hey, I want to play good, but, man, there's a little money on the line. I want them to do bad because I, you, you, you see, I mean, what kind of friend wants their friend to do bad? And this may seem like just a little thing to me, but I just wanted to be open and honest and stand before you, and I want you to know something about me as your pastor. And I want you to know I love God. And I love this church. And I love you. But at the same time, you need to know that I'm messed up. Man, I am a fallen sinner who's trying to cling to his Savior. And I'm trying to do what 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says to do on your outline. It simply says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, would you underline that phrase that says, if we confess our sins? Now, do you know, before you can really confess your sins, you have to have clarity about what sin really is. In fact, if I were to ask you to define sin by finishing this sentence, sin is, what would you say? Do you know 17th century author Ralph Venning, he described sin this way. He said sin is vile, ugly, odious, malignant, pestilent, pernicious, hideous, spiteful, poisonous, virulent, villainous, abominable, and deadly. Friends, that was over 200 years ago in the 17th century. Fast forward to our day and age, and the truth is many of us struggle to understand or even define sin because the notion of sin 
is like disappearing from the landscape of society. It seems like nobody sins anymore. Let me, let me try to explain to you why this matters so much. Did you know that the Bible teaches that your sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for it? In fact, when Jesus talked about sin, Jesus taught that sin is so serious that you should want to do anything it takes, even like to go all out on drastic measures to make sure you get sin out of your life. I mean, look at what Jesus said about sin in Mark 9.43 on the screens. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. See, I want to help us, before we take some time of confession of sin, I want to help you really understand this idea of sin. I want to lay a foundation by giving you five descriptive definitions of sin, and I hope you'll write these down. The first one in understanding sin is, the Bible teaches that sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is what? Lawlessness. It's the idea that when you sin, you are breaking God's laws, primarily the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. Number two, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark. That's why Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. I talked about that last week. Like, God has the standard for our lives, and we all fall short. The truth is, we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And I want to see if I can explain it this way. In the old English realm, sin was like an archery military term where you'd have this bullseye. And on this bullseye, what you would do is you would shoot your arrow. Now, I didn't bring an arrow, but in my case, I have my Spartan spear. I'm just saying, if you want to join my Spartan group, we do really cool stuff, like we throw spears at a bullseye. But let me, I'm doing this because I want you to understand sin. Sin is like this. You'd have a bullseye, and you'd take aim at the bullseye, and then you'd throw it, and the, thank you, Jesus, I hit the target. <laughs> You'd throw your spear, you'd shoot your arrow, and then what you'd do is you'd measure from the center of the bullseye, you'd measure the distance to where you actually hit the target, and that distance is what they call, they'd label that as that distance was your sin. And whether it was a three inch, whether you missed by three inches or three feet, it was sin all the same. It's the idea of missing the mark. The third definition of sin is that sin is an eye disease. Remember the Pharisee, I, I, I. It's living a self-centered life, like in James 3.15 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every evil practice. Sin. Fourth definition is sin is rebellion against God. It's cosmic treason. Psalm 510 says, O God, declare them guilty. Let them be caught in their own traps. Drive them away because of their many sins, for they have, what? Rebelled against you. Sin is this idea of turning your back on God, on his word, on his ways, where you say, forget you, God. I'm going to live my life my way. 
rebellion against God, cosmic treason. And the fifth one is perhaps the most connecting one to help us understand is that sin is a spiritual cancer. Spiritual cancer. And this is what makes it sin so, so dangerous and deadly. Because many times, just like cancer, sin starts out small, often goes undetected, but when it takes root, it grows and it spreads. And that's why James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us, drag us away, and these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it what? Gives birth to death, just like cancer. Do you know one of the reasons we're doing this series is to guard us from the naive way of thinking that says, you know, my sins really aren't bad, they're just baddish. Sure, I commit little sins here and there, but they aren't like the big sins, like adultery. Do you know when Jesus talked about sin, I want you to hear what Jesus said. Check out what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. He said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's Jesus, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying sin is like a malignant cancer. It starts as a lustful look, but then it grows into a porn addiction, and then it kills when it leads you to take action on that and commit adultery. Like it starts small, it grows, it spreads, and it leads to death. And friends, you know what adultery does. It makes the soul sick, kills a marriage, destroys a family, but usually it starts with a lustful look. Do you know the very next thing Jesus said after this verse? He said this, he said, you heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that if you are angry with someone, you sin, you sin just the same. Do you understand it? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Because Jesus understood that anger can spread like cancer. Anger can become resentment. It can metastasize into hatred which can lead to murder. Now, I know that, that all of you sitting here today would say, well, hey, wait, whoa, 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 I never killed anyone. But could it be that your angry words are killing your kids? Could it be that your terrible temper is messing up your marriage? Could it be that your short fuse is wrecking your work life? Friends, I think one of the most powerful passages that help us summarize the seriousness of sin is printed on your outline. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, let me set it up for you. Here's the deal. God's people are frustrated with God because they're, they're, they say this, man, I'm saying my prayers, but God's not hearing me. I'm asking God to help me. God's not showing up. And that Isaiah responds to that by saying these words, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities, that's another word for sin, your iniquities have what? Separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. Underline that phrase, your iniquities have separated you from your God. What I want to capture here 
is don't fall into the naive way of thinking that your sins are just baddish. They are so serious because they pull you away from your primary purpose. They separate you from God. And here's the idea I want you to capture. Write this down. The reason God hates sin is because God loves me and you. Friends, listen to me. God is not against sin because he's against you. God is against sin because he's for you. God hates anything that hurts your heart, crushes your soul, or pulls you away from sharing life with him. And here's the good news. Because God loves you and me, he doesn't leave us to stay stuck in sin. I mean, he provides a solution. He sent a savior. And I want you to see it in Isaiah, again, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 6, says this, we all, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, our Savior, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, do you, do you understand the nature of our amazing God? Do you know God is like this one coin? It's like one coin, yet there's two sides. There's one side of God where he is the holy, righteous, perfect judge. The almighty God who judges the world with justice and righteousness. On the other side of the coin is our compassionate, loving father who cares about his children. Now, on the holy, righteous judge side, understand God never winks at or tolerates sin. God always brings justice, and he makes sure that evil is punished and paid for. In fact, I really like this quote from Jerry Bridges, who says this, Forgiveness does not mean overlooking or tolerating our sin. God never does that. God always judges sin. And the pronounced penalty for sin is death, separation from God, and all that is good for all eternity. So that's the judging side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is our gracious, compassionate Father who loves you, doesn't want you to die. So he gave Christ to take your guilt, your sin, your shame, your selfishness. He gave Christ to suffer and die in your place on the cross so that your sins could be paid for, justice could be fulfilled, and you could be forgiven. That's why one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 that explains it so well. It says, you were dead, like guilty, condemned. You were dead because of your sins. And then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Here's how I want you to picture it. I want you to think of every sin that you've ever committed, every vile thought from your head, every foul word that's come out of your mouth, every evil deed that you've done with your hands, and I want you to think of all those sins compiled over a lifetime. And it's all listed out in this legal sin list, like a legal document that they're bringing into court. God is the righteous judge, and he's sitting there, and you know that he has you dead to rights. 
You're guilty. And just before God pronounces judgment, and the judgment of sin is the death penalty, Jesus takes that whole list, and here's what he does to it. He walks it over, he nails it to the cross, and he says, paid in full. Friends, this is what it looks like. This is what Jesus did for you. Every sin that you have ever committed, he paid for it on the cross. And when you see it, and when you get that in your head and in your heart, it changes everything. I mean, it did for me, and it did for John Newton. Do you know who John Newton is? John Newton was a slave trader. He was a captain of a slave ship. He wasn't just baddish, friends. He, he was a bad guy. Man, he kidnapped kids. Man, he, he took away people. He, he tore them out of their families. People who were made in the image of God, and he had them stripped and shipped into a life of terrible slavery. But along the journey of his life, he heard a message, much like the message I'm giving to you right now, and he saw himself. All his sins on the cross. Man, he turned away from his sin. He turned to God, and he sat down, and you know what he did? He wrote the most famous hymn in all of history. He wrote this, these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And as he got older, as he got closer to his death, he said something very powerful and profound. In fact, I put it on your outline. He, he said these words. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Friends, this is what, what I'm asking you to do with all of this message up to this point. My prayer for you, like I'm hoping and praying that you would understand that we need God's amazing grace. Would you write this down? Not only to save us, but also to sustain us. We need God's grace to save us, but also to sustain us. What I mean by this is that God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness, it saves our soul so that we can go to heaven when we die but it sustains us in this life, the very life you're living right now. God's grace. Here's what I mean. When you open up to God and his mercy, he fills you with his love so that you can become a more loving person. He covers you with this amazing grace so that you can become a more gracious person. He forgives all your sin so that you have a new power base to be a more forgiving person. And I want you to see it. I want you to understand it with our closing story about the woman caught in adultery. Do you know it? Do you know? Let's walk through it together. It says this from John 8, verses 1 through 11. As he, Jesus, was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. Now, we already know what Pharisees are like, right? The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, friends, I, I always have to stop here because every time I read this story, I'm thinking, man, if she's caught in the act of adultery, where's the dude? 
Like, where's the guy? Why did they grab the woman? Why didn't they bring the guy or bring both of them? But they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law says, I mean, they wanted the judging part, right? The law says that we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And they kept demanding an answer. So Jesus stood up again and said, all right, that's what you want. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. It goes on to say, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Friends, do you see it? Saving grace and sustaining grace. Jesus was the only one in the group who could throw a stone at her because he never sinned. But instead of condemning her, he gave her grace and forgiveness, literally saved her life in that moment. But do you see the grace to sustain her? He said, go and sin no more. You can lead a new and different kind of life. And God's amazing grace did that for her. But I want to tell you, it can do it for you. Friends, we've come to like the end of our message. It's, it's almost time to leave. But I want to ask, how will you leave here today? How will you walk out? I can't, I can't decide that for you, but I know for me, I want to leave here today justified. I want to know I'm clean and clear. I, I want to receive God's gift so that I could walk out fully loved, fully forgiven, covered by God's amazing grace that sustains me, but also saves me, but sustains me to live a different kind of life. I want to leave here today confident that I'm not condemned by Jesus. And I want to be committed to go and let God's love make me more loving. His grace make me more gracious. And his forgiveness making me a more forgiving person. So in this moment, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand before you with my head bowed. And I'm going to pray the tax collector's prayer. Oh God, have mercy on me. Because I am a sinner and I want to say, if that's your heart today, your desire, that you want to walk out justified, if that's your heart, as I stand here, I'm going to invite you, would you just stand with me? Would you rise to your feet and say, man, I want, I want to just cry out to God, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And let's do that now as we pray together. In your heart, would you simply pray? God, no more excuses, no more pretending. I know that my sins are more than just baddish. They're real. They've done real damage. My sins have hurt me, others, and they have hurt my relationship with you. And so from my heart, I cry out, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner my lies and lust, my arrogance and pride, my selfishness and greed, and God, the list goes on and on. 
as I look in the mirror of my soul, I'm so keenly aware that I need a Savior. Jesus, thank you that you took my place, my punishment, my death sentence on the cross so that I could be forgiven and justified. It's a gift of your amazing grace. Thank you that because of what you did for me, I am no longer condemned. I am saved by your grace. And now, Lord, sustain me. Fill me up with your Holy Spirit so that your love alive in me would make me more loving to those around me. That your grace activated in my heart would make me more gracious and that your forgiveness would help me be more forgiving to others who need your mercy. And it's in your name and for Christ's sake I pray this prayer. Amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone. You may be seated.